You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome everyone to All Creatures Podcast. This is Angie, and today I have a very exciting interview. I'm going to be talking with one of the world's premier bat conservation, education, and research centers, all right here in my backyard of Gainesville, Florida. Luby Bat Conservancy is an international nonprofit organization which is dedicated to saving bats and their habitats. Like I mentioned, through research, which is just incredible, we'll be talking about that today, conservation and education. And we, my family, loves Luby because we usually get to go once a year and see all the bats and learn so much about how they help our environment and also how we as a public can help them. So today I have Brian Pope talking with me, and he is the director of Luby Bat Conservancy. So welcome, Brian. Thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. And we appreciate you guys coming out to our Bat Fest. I've seen you guys quite a few times out uh, during our festival. So appreciate the support. Appreciate uh, you having me on here to talk bats and our organization. Oh, it's so it's just one of my the highlights of the year to come out there and see everyone and see everything and especially the bats. They're just so darn cute. And so today we're going to be talking all about bat conservation and hopefully busting some bat myths. And we'll learn all about what Luby is doing to help save bats. And so before we dive into the meat and bones, Brian, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and and how you became so specialized in bats? Um, well, I'm originally from Pennsylvania. I grew up about an hour southeast of Pittsburgh, um, kind of in the foothills of the Appalachian. So I was that kid that would run around, go flip over rocks, keep salamanders probably too long, <laughs> catch snakes, get bit by everyone. Um, but I always, you know, I grew up in the woods. You know, and I've always had a love for the outdoors. Yeah. And I always tell people that whenever I would hike to my grandparents' house, we'd have to go past two waterfalls. So I absolutely loved being outdoors. <clears throat> and I grew up with a family um, that we always had pets. We always had animals. So I knew from a very young age that I was going to work with animals. And originally it was going to be dinosaurs. I wanted to be a paleontologist. And then I remember that, being Oh, that's my grade. son. Both of my sons yeah. right now. They're I mean, total cool yeah, on the paleontology train. Mm-hmm. Every time I see a awesome. mockingbird, by the way. I hope they stick with it. I, I'd be, it'd be great. My our youngest wants to be a marine biologist, which is cool. They want to stick with that. That's great. Every time I see a mockingbird, by the way, I still think I'm, I'm looking at a little velociraptor. You know, every time I see a mockingbird, it reminds me of yes. it. Anyway, um, yes. But yeah, grew up in the woods, always loved animals. I my fam- family loved animals. So I wanted to be a paleontologist. And then um, when I was in sixth grade, I got information on Cornell University and their herpetology department. So I mean, I was just an animal nerd, you know. Um, but anyway, I went to Penn State and got um, my degree in biology and a minor in recreations and parks management. And then, honestly, I still didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, um, but I knew I wanted to work with animals. And then an opportunity came up at the Pittsburgh Zoo. So I was uh, working there for a little while. Um, but then, I honestly, I wanted to move south. I hate winters. I don't like cold weather. I grew up in it. And <laughs> You um, sound like my husband. Yes. <laughs> I can't stand it. Um, he's from New England, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he's a Patriots fan. But anyway, he um, is, yes. I'm a Steelers fan. But anywho, we can still um, be friends, right? Yeah, that's, we're, we're still OK. Um, I, I'm Midwest myself. I'm Michigan. So, uh, well, yeah. So, I mean, you got a couple too. Who's your team? Uh, Who's your football uh, team? Well, of course, the Lions. OK. 
Okay. Luckily, they never meet. Luckily, they never meet the Patriots because then I don't know. I, I might. I don't know. It might get ugly. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure Belichick would want to take it out on one of his uh, former staff members. But anyway, um, I was wondering I if Pittsburgh know, too. Right, right. I wanted to move south. Um, so I applied at a few different places, but what interested me was Luby's position because I really wanted to get involved with conservation and research. Um, and honestly, it was an opportunity to move south. Now, when it comes to bats, people ask, you know, did you always have a love for bats? And to be honest with you, I really didn't know too much about them. I would see them rarely, even though I grew up in the in the woods, but we would do a lot of um, caving. I was in scouts, so uh, we did a lot of exploration. I would see some there, and I was, was fascinated by them, but I, I was a reptile guy. Um, you know, but I had an opportunity to come to Luby and move south and get involved with the kind of work that I, I wanted to do. Um, and then I remember the first time I saw these animals, I was taken aback. I came down here for an interview like July or August of 96, and I couldn't believe the sheer size of these things. You know, I remember having a book as a child, and they talked about, like, you know, the giants of the animal world. And I'm literally looking at one, you know, he's got a five and a half foot wingspan. He's staring right at me, and I'm like, okay, this is going to be interesting. So um, I got the job. And I was at Luby for two years. And while I was here in the 90s, Disney's Animal Kingdom was, Disney was building the Animal Kingdom, um, but they were housing some of their animals here. So I would, I worked, um, I didn't work with those people or the animals, but you know, you see each other every day, you go out, have a good time. And, and then it was, Disney was going to be getting 27 of the bats from Luby on loan. And it was, would you like to come to work for Disney? And I was skeptical at first, because I don't know, a big corporation, I think it was my thing. Um, but I wound up going and literally moving with these bats. And I was there for about a decade. Absolutely loved my time at Disney. It was great. Um, but I was still, I wanted to do more. And then a curator job became available at Luby. And um, after talking with my wife and my family and my bosses at Disney and some of my other peers and mentors, I was like, you got to take the job. So I came up here uh, back to Luby in 2007 as director, I'm sorry, as curator. And I became director in 2011. And I absolutely love what I do. I love the animals that we have here. I love the work that Luby's been involved with. And it's been nice to see the progression and the growth of the organization uh, really over the past uh, 10 years. Yes, I can't wait to talk more about that. But working with all these bats, do you have a favorite species or an interaction story that you could share with some of our listeners? Yeah, I got I to gotta say, I have an affinity for the Malayan flying fox. So those are the largest species in the world by wingspan. There's one that's heavier. Um, but the the bats that we have here, uh, females are usually a little bit more shy, but it depends on the individual. But our males are just a little more approachable. And those are the ones that I really had an affinity for whenever I first started working here, and I still do. And interactions, as you know, and, and John knows, it's you're not supposed to get close to the animals. In, in the zoo field, you're not supposed to. But God, everybody does. So there was a bat here. He was brought in from the wild um, back in um, 1990. His name was Arthur. When we originally brought in um, these bats in 90, we brought in three males and nine female Blaine Flying Fox. I have a tendency to go off on tangents, so I'll try to keep this one short. Anyway. Oh, I know. <laughs> stories are the best tangents to go off I mean, on. Please, please. I mean, I'm I, enjoying you know, we, we, we love what we do, and you can keep talking about it. Anyway, so... The three males were Big Red King and Arthur, and these species of bat, these, these genus of bat, the teropas, they, for the most part, have harems. So whenever they set up breeding groups back then, I wasn't working there at the time, but Big Red had his females, and then King and Arthur were kept in an enclosure with a bunch of other females. Now, Arthur um, was uh, kind of a goofy-looking bat. He had these snaggle teeth. It's like his tongue could never fit in his mouth, and these huge eyes, these, you know, these, these big ears, and, and then he was in there with King. And King used to 
beat the living crap out of Arthur because he was just a big bat. I mean, this is the one I was talking about before. Five and a half foot wingspan. I mean, he weighed close to five pounds. He's enormous. A lot of pups were produced there, um, and everybody just figured since, you know, Arthur's getting a little roughed up that King was the one who produced them. Well, a few years down the road, they started looking at these like, God, they look an awful lot like Arthur. Did genetics a little further, and every single pup that came out of there was Arthur's. So you have this big bat king, and he was kind of beating up on Arthur, but Arthur bred every one of those females, and his genetics were so well represented that they had to pull king and then kind of breed all the males separate. And and what I like about Arthur is, one, he was extremely approachable. Um, and the way that Luby set up, as you know, is we can get in there real close with these animals. And um, a lot of people ask, you know, why do you like working with them? Are they violent? Are they aggressive? And, and the answer is absolutely not. These are extremely gentle animals. And when I was at Disney, I'd be looking at, you know, a bunch of hoofstock and, you know, you can get only so many, you know, yards close to them. With our bass, we go right in with them. Um, and we can always tell if there's something wrong with them, you know, how, how their uh, personalities are. But with Arthur, I always know I could approach him. He was fantastic for bringing media in because, you know, he really didn't care. But the fact that he's kind of this goofy bat, he produced 50 offspring. He has like 27 grandkids, you know, and just the fact that he was so prolific and he was kind of goofy looking and I, I don't know, he was just very endearing to me. He unfortunately passed away in, um, in 2017, but I have uh, pictures of him all over my office and everything. And actually there's, I know you could see it. There's like a little painting my, my brother had done for me, like a paper mache painting thing. And it's on Arthur. So I just, I loved working with that bat. He, I, I will always have an affinity for Arthur. And then uh, real quick about some other species we work with. Our whole history has been old world fruit bats, specifically for the most part, flying foxes. Over the past four or five years, Luby's been involved with a lot of work in, with Florida bats and native species. And we should have been doing this the whole time. And really it came to be because we get a lot of parents that are like, hey, that's great that you're teaching my kids about bats in Asia and Africa. Could you teach them about bats in their own backyard? So we started doing a lot of work with native bats. And then we had an opportunity to rescue, rescue some a few years ago from another organization that closed down abruptly. And uh, we brought in some big brown bats. And I had never, ever worked with native bats before. And honestly, I'm getting such a kick out of working with them. They're in the office today. Um, and not only are they kind of different, I mean, it's it, this is what's so interesting about bats. And another reason I love them is you have a mammal that flies, that echolocates, that can st still see very well and do all these things. And I can't even imagine the things that are going on with their, in their brains where they're echolocating. But we have this little device we could plug into our phone. And whenever these guys, especially there's one, Charlie, I absolutely love this guy. But whenever we approach him, we have that device in our phone. It not only shows you the echolocation, but it makes it audible. And they're so different from the old world fruit bats that we have. Now, the old world fruit bats don't echolocate, but these guys do. So it's just something new I've never worked with. And I absolutely love my time with them so long story short Milan flying fox and big brown bats have been pretty cool um that i've enjoyed uh my time and god the past two and a half decades working with them oh and just just the personality i think that's something that if you haven't worked close with certain species regardless if they're a mammal a reptile or a bird i mean they have personalities and some are shy and some are outgoing and it really is just this unique experience to be be so up close and personal and and have these personal stories that's why i love hearing from them so thank you for that and you touched a little bit on the old world bats which luby's been known to specialize in the flying foxes but with all the bats in the world how many species are there what are the main differences between the old world new world bats and how are they doing conservation-wise? Like, which ones are endangered? Um, I'll start off with the number of species. So when I first started working with bats in 96, there was about 920 species of bats. As of today, there's over 1,420. 
<clears throat> so the fact that they've found over 500 species, and some of these are in you know museum specimens and looking at morphology, dentition, but 500 species in like two and a half decades—it's crazy. That's so crazy. It's, yeah. it's amazing how many are out there. So so over 1,400. Um, if we're talking about the number of species that are threatened and endangered, you're looking at 25% of those. There are approximately 47 species of bats in the United States, and 40% of them are threatened, um, which is absolutely incredible. The threats that bats are facing is, is unprecedented. Um, and let me touch on this too, is a lot of people, you know, what is a bat? And we have a couple of cameras in our enclosures, and people can see them if they go to explore.org. And we have... Um, one of the cameras in an enclosure, it was like a breeding group last year, we're actually going to be putting together a breeding group. And the reason I wanted to put that in there was so people could not only see these bats breed, but to see the females give birth because we still get asked a lot. And it's just, it's just ignorance. You know, there's not really a lot of information known on bats. I don't remember learning about them whenever I was a child in school, but I mean, they're mammals just like us. And I thought it was a really cool opportunity and it could have, you know, I knew it was a risk. What happens if, if we had an issue with one of the births? Luckily, we didn't. We had um, 11 babies born. Um, but I wanted people to see a bat giving birth. Like, what does that look like? You know, and it's, I mean, they're mammals just like we are. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, for people do to Do they do really it upside to, down? That's the question. Gotta, I think you, it depends on what you mean by do it. So let's let's back up real quick. Do they do it upside down? <laughs> I know what you meant. I know what you meant. But I, it's a good question. Though. They do breed upside down. Um, and they also give birth upside down. Now, if the female is having trouble giving birth, what she'll do is she'll flip up upright, like as normal, I mean, looking straight ahead, like we would hold on with her thumbs, give a little push, and then flip back, you know, right side up. Um, and their teats, I mean, their nurse are babies. They have two, just like humans and primates. They're underneath the armpit area. So once that baby's born, and if we're strictly talking about old world fruit bats, they give birth head first, fully furred, and at about 10 to 15% of the mom's body weight, by the way, huge. That mom tucks that baby in underneath her arm, and it begins nursing. So that's the thing. We talk about number of species, um, threatened, endangered, and, but I think really what it goes back to are what are mam- or what are bats? Bats are mammals, and a lot of people ask us, you know, are bats rats? Are they are they, you know, flying mice? In this section, like I said, I go off on tangents in my brain. I was thinking, okay, so let's talk about what bats are, and you know, but and a lot of people have misconceptions about bats. If you look at the tree of mammals, okay, rodents and primates are actually on one side, and bats are on the other side. Now they're in their completely separate order. Uh, other than rodents, they're the most numerous order of mammals. But the animals they're more closely related to with the latest genetic information is pangolins and carnivores. So, you know, people think of them as flying mice, flying rats. They're actually on the other side of the spectrum, more related to a tiger, you know, than they are to, to a mouse. Wow. Um, so, I mean, again, just yeah. fascinating animals. And I'm trying to hit all your questions. So we're talking about um, old and new world fruit bats, the differences. I think really the difference would be um, mega bats and micro bats. And there's new terminologies, but, but basically there's 1,400 species of bats. 1,200 of them are micro bats. So here in the States, that's what we kind of see flying around. Uh, but they're found worldwide. Um, they echolocate. They're, for the most part, smaller. Um, there is some differences between them and old world uh, old world fruit bats when it comes to reproductive physiology, neural pathways. But for the most part, new world, uh, I'm sorry, microbats, microbats, uh, echolocate, uh, tend to see be a little bit smaller and their uh, feeding ecology, what these guys feed on is varied. Everything from, from fruits and nectars to insects to, um, other species of bats. There are three species of vampire bats. There's carnivorous bats, bats that just eat frogs, bats that eat fish. Um, now if we're talking about our old world bats, our old world fruit bats, 
These guys have a tendency to be a little bit larger. For the most part, they do not echolocate, although there are some species of rosettus bats that have a very primitive um, uh, way of echolocating where they use their tongues. But for the most part, again, living in the old world, don't echolocate. Neural pathways, reproductive uh, physiology, a little bit different. Um, Microbats give birth uh, breach. Um, feet first, whereas uh, the megabats give birth uh, head first. So there are some differences, and there's been some question, you know, did uh, flight evolve twice in mammals? It's gone back and forth. I remember that from like the 90s, but a bat is a bat. There's just so many different species of bats and so many different kinds of bats, and uh, and I think that's what makes them unique. And I think if, if people are out there and they want to see some of the unique features of bats, just Google unusual bats, unusual bat species. And I tell you what, you're going to see bats that you didn't even know existed. There's one, it's so wild. It's called a Tomes, Tomes's sword nose bat. It's T-O-M-E-S apostrophe, apostrophe S, sword, you know, as in the weapon, dash nose bat. Check it out. Dig it. It's a, it's a wild looking bat. There's so many unusual ones out there, but, and people ask, why do they look so unusual? Why do their faces have wrinkles and their ears are huge or their noses are huge? Everything's to survive. You know, they might have strange features to echolocate. Some bats echolocate from their mouths. Others echolocate through their nose. Um, and I think I said this, but yeah, megabats do not echolocate, but they have these really big eyes to capture as much light as they can. Um, but whether a bat echolocates or not. And the cutest can, faces. Man, they're, they're adorable. But yeah, there's some wild ones out there. Like I said, just check it out. But whether a bat, I should say this, whether they echolocate or not, um, all bats can see very well. Um, microbats, you know, maybe not as, as well as some of the megabats in humans, but but it's a myth that bats are blind. All bats can see very well. The microbats echolocate because it's it's an easier means to get around the dark of night um, to uh, and to hunt prey. Wow, that's so incredible! I cannot wait to look up. It was the this, uh, what bat? This yeah, just Tom? like just like unusual I'll, bat I'll species. Oh yeah, Tomes's Tomes's okay. sword nose bat. It is a wild looking species so it's pretty cool to see what's out there i'm actually oh, thinking about making these big signs so if we're in an outreach or people come to luby they can see this thing and literally like what the hell is that and it's like well th- okay this is a bat and this is why its face looks like this and to kind of get show them that you know maybe they're not aesthetically cute that some people might think i think they're adorable but this is why they look like this this is why they have these features it's to survive it's for echo it's to echolocate it's to hunt prey so it i mean if you look at the diversity of mammals, no other, no other uh, order of mammals has the diversity that bats do. Oh, that's so incredible. And, and now you mentioned like here in the United States, 40% of our bat species are either threatened or endangered. And so here in the U S and then in, throughout the world, what is causing uh, these numbers to drop and some of these species to become extinct or at least endangered? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of different factors. The main one is going to be habitat loss. I mean, you know, we know, I think what is in the past two centuries, we lost, lost 50% of the world's forests, if, if not just the past 100 years. You know, so, I mean, obviously habitat loss is affecting uh, animals and us. I mean, I mean, it's it's affecting every living thing that's on the planet. Um, so habitat loss is, is one of the main things uh, affecting bat species worldwide. If we're just talking about here in North America, uh, there's a disease called white nose syndrome. Um, and if there's any viewers out there or listeners, I should say that have never heard of it, uh, I advise you to, to look it up. White is in the color nose syndrome. Um, so, uh, it is believed if not, uh, you know, for a fact that it came from Europe, it's a fungus, um, that affects bats that go into a true hibernation. Um, now the bats over there, uh, have built up relative immunity to it. Um, but back in 2006, it somehow made its way, you know, from Europe to the United States. And there's a cave in New York. Um, where it was first uh, detected. And they were finding bats flying around in the dead of winter. They were finding bats dead in the cave, 
uh, bats dead outside of the cave. And what this, uh, in, in simple terms, what this fungus does um, is it affects bats that go into a true hibernation. So it irritates them. It wakes them up whenever they should be hibernating. They deplete their uh, energy reserves. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They may go out searching for something to drink and eat, and it's winter. So they're not even supposed to be up. If they wake up, it's just for a little bit of time, you know, use a little bit of their reserves and then, you know, go back into hibernation. Um, so this disease, in, in, in simple terms, it, it irritates them. It wakes them up. They fly. They get hungry. They starve or they freeze to death. But it does a lot more than that. I mean, it can affect their immune systems, their respiratory systems. Uh, there's devastating pictures of how this, this fungus is eating away at their wings. Uh, and, and since it was found in 2006, I believe the latest numbers are it's in 37 states um, in seven Canadian provinces killed between six and seven million bats. I mean, outside of the bison getting wiped out, which was obviously man-made, and I get this one is too, man-caused because it was brought over. Uh, this is one of the most devastating things to happen to North American wildlife. Um, uh, but again, it, it only affects bats that go into true hibernation and it affects different uh, bats differently. So where you and I grew up, little brown bats were, were very common. Um, in southwestern Pennsylvania, which that was one of the predominant species. Now their numbers got hit hard. They got hit very hard. Little browns in Pennsylvania, Vermont, New York, places like that. And it's got a mortality rate with this species, 98 to 100 percent. But big brown bats, which are found all over North America and, and Central America, South America, very, very wide range, only about a 25 to 40 percent mortality. Um, bats that have a tendency to migrate or tree-dwelling species like eastern reds and northern yellows doesn't really affect those guys at all. So it depends on the species, um, how they're affected. But but the numbers, again, you're looking at 67 million bats. Um, and uh, so, you know, what can people do to, to help? Uh, one is just become aware of the situation. Uh, if you are somebody who likes to go spelunking, um, follow the rules that are there. A lot of caves have been closed uh, to stop the spread. Um, and uh, so just if you are going to go into a cave, disinfect uh, your clothes before, after, just follow the rules that are there. But there is good news. Um, I mean, it continues to spread, but but I'm a half, my glass is half full kind of guy. So there are reports that there are some bat populations that are surviving, um, that, that are surviving white-nose syndrome. They, they're not just coming to this cave and they just f first found them, that they've been in these caves for, you know, a season or two, a year or two. Uh, and they have, you know, they're bigger, they have more muscle, they have more fat, and they're seeming to build up immunity. We're not going to see numbers in our lifetime, um, especially with certain species like little brown bats. Um, but there are some positives out there. And there are individuals doing wonderful things. Um, Dr. Deanne Reeder out of Bucknell University, who Luby's uh, done, a lot of, done a lot of work with looking at uh, immunology, uh, and some other individuals um, uh, with uh, USGS, uh, US Forest Service. People are doing wonderful work out there. And there's a lot of work to be done. And uh, Luby's been a supporter of that. We've done education uh, programs on that. Um, but that's one of the main things affecting bats in North America. Outside of habitat destruction, white nose here, um, overhunting. Um, uh, bats just absolutely getting wiped out because of the bushmeat trade, um, overharvesting. And, uh, you know, a lot of times it's it's not the people that live with these animals, the, the hunters that, that are the problem. These people, are, this, you can't go over to these countries and tell them you, you can't hunt these animals. They ain't going to come over here and tell us we can't hunt turkey and deer. It's the poachers that are the problem. Um, and, and there has been, uh, the Guam flying fox was hunted and eaten to extinction and numbers are plummeting because of illegal trade or just over harvesting, not, uh, not having limits, not having, um, uh, certain species that, you know, that are, that are getting harvested and killed during maternity season. But, but there are a lot of folks, uh, all over the world, uh, I use bat specialist group, you know, folks with Luby, people we work with who are working with local communities, working with governments and working with our in-range partners um, to try to halt this and, and work with the communities uh, to try to, to establish quotas, 
um, maybe not hunt during maternity season. So again, a lot of positive things. A lot of countries are starting to add bats to the protected list. They're not just looked at vermin and pests anymore. Uh, but again, still a lot of work to do. But that's why Luby's been chugging along for 31 years, and we're going to continue to uh, to be involved with uh, bat conservation and uh, community education projects. Well, yeah, and it's clear that bats do need our help across the world here in the States and then everywhere else. And But you're going to have naysayers out there that aren't like you and me who don't look at a bat and say, oh my gosh, it has the cutest, most unique face, or that one looks like a dog. There's going to be people out there that probably don't think bats are worth conserving. So, and so Brian, briefly, how do you get people or kids excited about wanting to conserve bats? Like, why care? Well, they need to come to Luby then and see our bats, you know. I mean, honestly, that's, I agree. You know, we just started <laughs> yeah. private tours again. They have to be scheduled in advance. But, you know, uh, honestly, education awareness is huge. Um, and people aren't going to care about things that they don't see. I'll try not to go off on a tangent. There's a lot of people that don't even like animals in zoos, okay? Well, I can tell you right now that I wouldn't have been involved with exotic animals and, you know, become director of one of the world's premier bat conservation organizations if I wouldn't have went to Pittsburgh Zoo or with some of these, you know, wildlife centers and, and saw these animals. Education awareness is huge. Show them what a bat looks like. People, that's the thing about bats. I mean, it, it, it depends on the culture, you know, who's scared of bats, who, you know, cultures that revere bats, but you, know, you don't really get to see them a lot. You don't see them up close. So I think that if, if people would just take a second to look at things that they may fear. Um, look up a bat. Look at, you know, Luby's, you know, explore.org cams. Look, check out our website, see the pictures. Um, but really to learn about these animals and why they're important. And that's the other thing, too. What we like to say is that bats are some of the most important mammals on Earth. Why should people care? Um, it's because every night they're out there performing ecosystem services that no other mammal does. Okay, no other mammal on Earth does the services that bats do. Every night they're out there eating mosquitoes, eating agricultural pests. There was a study done by uh, USGS and, and some other fantastic bat biologists in the states um, that looked at how much bats save farmers per year, and the average stay put was between 3.7 and 53 billion dollars a year annually by reducing the need for pesticides uh, because these bats are consuming crop pests. One of the main ones is the corn earworm moth, the cotton bollworm moth. Um, I mean, they devastate corn crops, soybean, cotton. The bats aren't eating the the larvae that eat the that eat these plants that eat these. Or I should say crops, but they're eating the parents. They're eating the moths. Not only that, but they consume a lot of mosquitoes as well. And it, uh, you know, people were saying they can eat a thousand, two thousand mosquitoes an hour. I mean, they can't. Um, but bats, for the most part, depending on the species, um, even if they don't consume a lot of mosquitoes, certain species they do. From, from the ones that we have here in Florida, they're all going to consume mosquitoes. There's one in particular called a southeastern myotis um, that they absolutely go nuts for mosquitoes. So ecosystem services when it comes to insect control. Now let's talk about the fruit bats and seed dispersal and pollination. People like tequila. <laughs> there is a bat that um, it's called the... Love uh, it, yes. Uh, lesser <laughs> lo- I'm not a tequila kind of guy, but I, I do I do like beer. And there it has to be cons- mixed in a margarita. Yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not a big... Of course, yeah, but still. Maybe in my Penn State days, uh, <laughs> briefly. Um, but I mean, there's a bat, the lesser long-nosed bat, um, that specializes in pollinating cactus and agave. And agave is obviously where we're going to get tequila. You look at other um, products that uh, folks depend on, that people eat, you know, bananas, cashews, mangoes, figs, dates, 
Bats are responsible uh, for pollinating these flowers and dropping the seeds. Baobab trees. Bats are the primary pollinators, and you know how important they are, these baobab trees in, in Africa and Madagascar. There's uh, another um, fruit that is called durian, uh, which is uh, very important. in um, It's an agricultural crop over in Asia. Now, durian has a pretty bad rap for being a pretty stinky fruit. I think it takes a special person to, to want to eat this or smell it. Um, but it's, a, it's an important crop. Side note. These bats that we have here, we have a lot of Asian species, and they pollinate the durian flowers and eat durian. <clears throat> so years ago, I went to a market. And again, if folks aren't familiar with durian, D-U-R-I-A-N, check it out. It's like banned in like hotels and subways and stuff because it has this odor. But it's a delicacy. A lot, a lot of people around the world like it. But <laughs> I, I was like, it. you know what? I'm going to get yeah. some for the staff, and then we're going to give it to the bats. We're going to see what they do. You know. So I got an actual durian fruit stunk. And then I bought some that was like in like a custard or something like that. <laughs> so, you know, sat the staff around and said, okay, we're going to try this because you know, we're going back to our bats. We're doing research. So it started off uh, like a like a creamy kind of a texture, like a pudding, and it ended like in rotten onion. Couldn't stand it. Nobody liked it. Gave it to the bats. They wanted nothing to do with it. I was going to say, you're, you're, not, so, you're not doing good to sell it. That's <laughs> a delicacy. I'm just giving you a story about Louie. But um, – uh, but anyway, uh, we had that whole fruit. The bats wanted nothing to do it. We wound up just burying it in a field. But anyway, when it comes to durian, bats are extremely important. But but really just with you – know, nobody wanted anything to do with it. It's still sitting out there somewhere, maybe fermenting. But um, ecosystem services, agricultural pests, mosquitoes, and then bats uh, uh, pollinating flowers, uh, dispersing seeds. And there's been studies that have shown in certain areas of Central America – Central uh, South America – and also in Southeast Asia, that bats are the first ones that will go over areas that have been deforested and spread seeds. And some of these seeds won't even germinate until they pass through a bat. So it, it, studies have shown that they're responsible for at least the first primary growth, 90% of that. Again, we're talking about why bats are important. Every night they're doing these services. They are the most important mammals to humans when it comes to all the other orders out there. There are obviously mammals that some uh, people may consume, some of us consume, uh, but bats are the most important mammal when it comes to humans. So why should people care? Um, because they're important to us. They're important to our survival. They're important to the survival of the rainforest, desert ecosystems, um, and because they're just fascinating animals. Again, you have a, a mammal, the only mammal that can fly, that can echolocate. And what's wild is we do uh, we do a lot of uh, field work here in Florida, and we'll set up acoustic equipment. And I'll get this data back, and, and I've got to go and analyze these calls. And I get them in these 1.7-second blocks. And what you got to look at is the shape of the call and the frequency of the call. And I'll get some of these calls. Where these bats are calling in two different octaves. And while they do these search calls where they're navigating, they're hunting, but there's also these social calls in between. So, and these guys are doing this, you know, repeatedly for hours on end without stopping to fly. So they're flying, they're echolocating, they're talking to their friends, and they're hunting and navigating all at the same time. It's just absolutely incredible uh, I, what these animals are doing. I can't even walk and chew gum. I mean, like, like that's incredible. These guys, they got to figure it out. So... Why do I like what I do? Well, one, I just I love animals, you know, and and I've always known I was going to have a career in animals, but to have the privilege to work with these animals every day, and I worked with a lot of different animals at Disney, but to work with these guys every day for 24 years has been incredible. Um, and then to to see the work that Luby's been involved with over th over three decades just makes us all very proud to work for this organization. I agree wholeheartedly, Brian. Uh, going out to Luby, learning this, doing a little bit of research on my own, I have fallen in love with the bats in my, in my backyard. I definitely want more of that mosquito-eating bat. <laughs> Bring those bats on. They're like and this yeah, big. They're, just, they're so I mean, small. They're cute. Oh, 
so darling. Yeah. And just the help that they give farmers. It's, yeah. They're just incredible. Uh, and so we are approaching Halloween. And so a lot of times bats have this bad connotation or people fear them. And so what are a couple myths about bats that you could bust to help encourage people to maybe take a second look uh, as far as uh, like rabies comes to mind and other things like that? Um, well, the first one is what you know. You and I were just discussing. They're they're not blind. All bats can see very well. Uh, if the you know the twelve hundred species, twelve hundred you know give or take species that echolocate, whether they echolocate or not, all bats can see very well. They're not going to get caught in your hair. Um, you know, if you walk around at night, you have some insects around you. They may swoop down to catch those insects. But why is a, a, an animal this big in a mess with a human? I mean, it's just not. They don't do that. It's not a thing that they do. Um, uh, bats are dirty. Um, they carry disease. We'll get into the disease in a little bit. I can assure you that bats are not dirty. They clean themselves constantly. So at least two to three times a day, bats are constantly grooming themselves. And they have to. I mean, they they have wings that they have to keep clean. By the way, I, I, let me back up real quick. With I've mentioned before that you know bats are unique. They're in their own order. Uh, and they're the only mammal that can fly. What enables them to fly, by the way, are their wings. And a lot of people ask, you know, what is their wing? What does it feel like? Um, we'll, start, we'll just start real quick on, on morphology. Uh, a bat's wing is just its hand. So if you're looking at kind of like from from our point of view, like like a primate, the upper arm is in you know comparison to the body, you know, kind of about the same size, but the forearm is very elongated, and then they have huge fingers. And we like to make the analogy that if a bat was standing upright, which they can't do, but if a bat was standing upright, was to put its wrist at the top of its head, its middle finger would almost touch the ground. So it's just a large arm and hand encased in skin, and that skin, which is called the patagium, there's a sheet that goes from the base of the thumb to the shoulder, in between all the fingers, and then from the pinky, like the tip of the pinky, down to about the ankle area. So that's what enables bats to fly. And what do the wings feel like is, uh, we say it kind of feels like your eyelid, um, but they're constantly keeping um, their their bodies and their wings clean. Another thing, by the way, people ask, why do bats hang upside down? And I just wrote a comment yesterday for our Explorer uh, on our Explorer page, but the reason they hang upside down is to take flight. They don't really have a lot of mass in their rear ends of their legs. <laughs> They're not, you know, birds. They don't have hollow bones. You know, they're mammals just like us. They don't really have a lot that comes to their backsides of their legs. They have these locking tendons in their toes, though, um, uh, that pretty much kind of holds them in place. And just like it would take effort for us to curl our toes, it takes effort for them to open them up. So if a bat wants to take flight, all it has to do is look around or echolocate or whatever the situation is, uh, drop and then catch air. And that's why bats hang upside down. So, um, but anyway, I'll go back to myths. Um, so they're not dirty animals. Uh, they have disease. Oh, this is a big question. Um, they don't. <laughs> so let's talk about rabies. Bats don't just have rabies, okay? Uh, any species of mammal, for the most part, can get rabies, but bats just don't have it. Um, the thought is that less than one-tenth of one percent of bats have rabies. Now, if you see a bat on the ground or any other wildlife that's acting odd, do not touch it. Call your local animal control, wildlife rescue re rehabilitator um, if, an, if an animal looks like it's, if it's odd. I can tell you that bats, for the most part, uh, like to be up as high as they can. But bats don't just have rabies, and if they were to get it, their bodies are so small that, that that virus ravages them, and they're pretty much dead within 48, 72 hours. Other diseases. <clears throat> In our mission statement, we talk about, we like to say, bats through research, conservation, education, with a focus on children and community engagement. The research aspect. Uh, for decades now, Luby has been involved with uh, a lot of research, non-invasive, uh, non-destructive, non-lethal. We don't do anything like that. Uh, but we've worked with everybody from the CDC. Uh, to NIH. I was up at the Rocky Mountain Labs uh, over in Montana a, year, a few years ago with the NIH. Uh, 
the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, Dr. Fauci, and Boston University, Bucknell. I mean, so many universities, agencies that we've worked with to study bat immunology. The thing is that bats, uh, for, for certain diseases, don't seem to get sick. So if they, so there, there's the thought that bats can, are the hosts of um, diseases like Ebola and Marburg, uh, Nipah and Southeast Asian Hendra. Well, the fact is they've never really found a, a live Ebola virus in a bat, but they have found antibodies. So what they're finding is that if a bat were to get these diseases and they don't just have them, but if they were to acquire these diseases, there's something in their immune system uh, that is able to eradicate them and make them immune. Now, the thought is that, you know, bats fly. Their body temperatures increase. Viruses can be relatively fragile. Nobody really knows at this point. And I know that there's researchers out there saying, well, we do know. But I'm, from, from kind of on layman's terms, there's still a lot that we, we really don't know. Um, but there's got to be more to it. There's something in their immune systems. They, they just don't get sick from these diseases. And that's where Luby comes in. So we work with, with some of these agencies and universities. And if a project you know, it's given to us. We have a research committee that uh, John from Santa Fe is, is a part of. And if we approve this project, um, uh, we work with these universities. So we may draw a little bit of blood, put the bat, you know, under anesthesia, take a little bit of blood and then put them back. You know, if it's during their physical, maybe we take a little bit of blood. I mean, that's, that's all that we do, but we'll send these blood samples off. And whenever I was up in those labs a few years ago, it's like, you know, you send us this blood, we're injecting it with these biosafety level four viruses, you know, Ebola and Marburg to find out what is in their immune systems so that they don't get sick so that maybe we could find cures for some of these diseases that, that, that take an effect uh, on, on uh, you know, apes and on humans. Bats are not spreading COVID-19. They're not spreading SARS-CoV-2. <clears throat> so we might as well just get this, you know, talk about this now because it's, it's a good question. People, you know, people ask about that. So <clears throat> bats are not spreading SARS-CoV-2, which causes the disease COVID-19. Now, where did the disease come from? Okay, we still don't know. What they have found, and these are the great folks, we work with EcoHealth Alliance, great folks from EcoHealth Alliance who have done a lot of work over in Asia and over in China and a lot of other countries. Uh, Dr. John Epstein, if he happens to hear this, talking about, you know, the, the, uh, the organization he works for. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the folks that have done work over there, they have found that there is a species of bat, and I don't know if this is EcoHealth Alliance, but we do work with them, but, but I know that there was good researchers that found um, one species Okay, out of 1,420 plus species, just one, they've looked, one species called the intermediate horseshoe bat, where they found a virus called RATG13 that is 96.3% similar to SARS-CoV-2. Now I know if we're talking about viruses, we're talking about a very small amount of, you know, genetic material. But if we would just want to look at numbers, humans share 98.6% the same genetics as a chimpanzee. This RATG13 virus, they found is 96.3% similar to SARS-CoV-2. So that is a world apart. It's the closest thing they found. So is this coming from, did it originate from bats? They think that, you know, if there was, if it did come from a bat, that this could have been decades ago, that that, that virus wouldn't do anything to humans or, or other mammals that are out there. It's a virus that bats live with doesn't affect anything. But whether that was the ancestor for SARS-CoV-2, we don't know. We don't know where this came from. Was there an intermediate host? Did it come from another animal? I can tell you right now, though, I mean, unequivocally, Bats are not spreading SARS-CoV-2. They're not. Humans are the only animals that I believe we know of so far, although I know some kind of weird uh, circumstances with, uh, with, with some mink and, and some farms overseas. But, but uh, as far as research has shown, the only animals that are spreading SARS-CoV-2 is humans. Uh, but you do not need to worry about, you know, your bats that you see flying around. They have more to worry about from us, you know, spreading it to them, which <laughs> I know there's ongoing. I mean, there's ongoing research with bats and a lot of other, a lot of other mammals. Can we 
spread this, you know, to those animals. And there was a paper sure. that came out, and I yeah. hope I don't misquote what's in this paper, but they were looking at the ACE2 receptors, so what the virus binds to in respiratory cells. And I believe that they had a, a, a catalog of over 400 species of animals that they have information on these cells. And what would SARS-CoV-2, what, what is like the likelihood that it would bind to these receptor cells? Humans and ape species, very high. They looked at bat species, quite a few that we have here, that it looked extremely low. Um, carnivores, very high. So again, there's just so, still so much we don't know, but please don't be afraid of, of bats that are in your backyard. Please don't be afraid of other mammals that are out there. These animals are just out there trying to survive. And as far as science knows, the only animals that are spreading SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, is humans. Did I cover yeah, everything with a myth? I'm sure there's other things out there. But, yes, you, know. <laughs> you are amazing. No, thank you for that because bats get a bad rap for so many reasons. And I think it's because for whatever reason they are associated with fear or people getting them caught or thinking or having them in their house. But I would, I think it's much grosser to have like a mouse or a cockroach in my house than I would a bat. Uh, and that's just through educating myself and learning more about them. And And as you mentioned too, with any animal that's down on the ground and not acting right, you shouldn't pick it up or get near it to begin with. And that's, I know what I teach my kids. I know what you teach your kids. I don't care if it's a cute little squirrel, it still could have diseases and it still might bite you. So I think it's just some of those myths that are important to get out there. And then, then from there, yes, people need to definitely go to your website and of course go, um, go to Luby and check it out when you get a chance to do that. And so that kind of leads me into my next segment of learning more about Luby Bat Conservancy. Can you give us a little background on your current mission and goals and how you implement these through your daily work? Yeah, so our, our mission is um, we're a nonprofit organization dedicated to saving bats in their habitats for research, conservation, and education uh, with a focus on children and community engagement. Um, our three core institutional purposes are uh, animal care and welfare. Um, conservation and, and education. So with what we do, we just celebrated 31 years last year, which was really cool. We were very, uh, celebrated 30. Who the hell celebrates 31? We celebrated 30 years last year, <laughs> 31 years uh, this past July. And, and we've done a lot in, during that time. I mean, we, we are uh, the premier organization in the world whenever it comes to uh, bat husbandry, animal care, welfare, and medical management. We've worked uh, in 19 countries. Uh, worked with 15 critically endangered species. Um, and again, I mentioned the research aspect. Every year we reach about 30,000 people um, through education outreach tours uh, of the facility. Um, and uh, we've taught, we've had 160 plus publications come from Luby. We have taught over 800 researchers, um, people that work for some of the agencies I'd mentioned, people that are out in the field every day working with communities and kids. We have empowered women's groups We've built schools. Uh, we work with veterans groups. We work with organizations that cater to uh, children um, and disadvantaged members of the community. And there are just so many things that Luby's been involved with. And one of the things that we like to say is that animals are central to everything we do. But there's so many other factors that are positively influenced by our conservation and education programs. And I think one of the things that, I'm, uh, that we're all so proud of is that whenever we get involved with field work, conservation work. I mean, even here in, in Florida, in Gainesville, Alachua County, <clears throat> there's always this aspect of the animals, but there's always a community engagement aspect. It's nice to go out there in the field, and it's critical that people go out there in the field and get the natural history information and, and learn about some of these uh, species. Um, 
we do we fund a lot of work in the Solomon Islands. There's five species there that people we've never even heard of, even bat biologists, are called monkey-faced bats. There's just still so much that we don't know about them. So it's species like that, and I guess species in general, that it's important to go out there and get the natural history data. But you're not going to do a damn bit of difference unless you get the local communities involved. And anytime we fund these projects or we're the ones leading it, um, we always work with the community. Nothing's going to get done unless you work with the communities. And if I may speak uh, quickly about one of the projects that, that we're very proud of, that we funded for a long time, uh, and I think this is a good um, project to show that one person can make a difference. <coughs> Excuse me. We work with a species of bat here called a Rodrigues fruit bat. If anybody's on their computers and, you know, they want to hear that they have a chance, Rodrigues, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-S, fruit bat, Rodrigues flying fox, same thing. They look like a cross between an Ewok and a teddy bear. They're so cute. We've had them here for a long time. I mean, they're absolutely adorable. But they're found on Rodrigues Island, east coast of Madagascar, um, near Mauritius, the island of Reunion, Mascarene Islands. Uh, Deforestation uh, wiped out about 80% of the trees in the island uh, in the early 20th century and years, subsequent years, um, 14 endemic species of birds and reptile went extinct. So endemic, they're not found anywhere else. There was only three species that survived, uh, two species of bird and the Rodriguez fruit bat. In the late 70s, there was only about 20, I'm sorry, about 75 of these bats left. So uh, Jersey Preservation Trust at the time, which is now known as Durrell Wildlife Preservation Society, I believe, brought in about a third of those bats and then started to breed them. Um, the good thing about these type of bats is they breed easily. And actually, I guess that's something that I should say too. Luby's involved um, with uh, the AZA. We're a certified related facility of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And we breed bats based on species survival plan recommendations. So we have bred our Malayan flying fox, variable flying fox, and then Rodriguez fruit bats. So they started breeding these bats. They breed pretty easily. They started doing some conservation work. But it was in the 90s that a native Rodriguez, her name was Mary Jane Rabuti, got involved and started a grassroots conservation effort. Started a radio program, got the community involved, uh, worked with kids, worked with elderly, worked with everybody to start a grassroots conservation movement. Um, and Philly Zoo got involved at the time, Philadelphia Zoo. Uh, and they do wonderful work. They got involved. Uh, a woman named Kim Lengel worked with Mary Jane Rabuti, but Mary Jane Rabuti is the catalyst for all this, um, to start funding these education programs, start breeding some of these bats here in the States. And Luby got involved, and we've been funding this project uh, for, for years and years. Um, uh, that project is now taken over by another in individual. Um, but what I like about this project, so if we're just looking at it from the animal aspect, okay, you went from about 75 animals in the world, 75 in the wild, to now latest concert between 16 and 20,000 bats. And this is all thanks to the wow. people on that. I know. And, and yeah. the concern would be, you know, genetic bottleneck effect. You know, you look what happened with, um, with cheetah and bison, but a lot of island species can take that kind of a hit and rebound. So the genetic variability is, is fantastic. Not only the wild population, but captives, a captive population in zoos because they're, they're managed very well. But because of what Mary Jane started, what others have taken over, and because of the, the community, the, the people that live on the island, there have been reforestation projects. There have been uh, a lot of community engagement, volunteer hours, working with government, uh, Mauritian Wildlife Foundation, uh, working with schools and kids. And I love this story because it shows what one person can do. And obviously there's a lot of people involved, but it just takes one person to get started and one person can make a difference. And we all we hear all the time, and, and rightly so, but about poaching and deforestation, loss of biodiversity, and these are horrible things. But let's not forget that there are good people out there and good stories to go around. There are plenty of them. 
And I love talking about this project because it's really one person can make a difference. And they just, that species, Rotary's fruit bats, went from critically endangered and now they're, they're listed as endangered because they're out there in the ocean. You know, if a storm comes, it could, it could do some damage. And I believe last year in 2019, there were two storms, um, but it's, it's resilient people there. It's a resilient species of animal and their numbers are doing great. And there are good stories out there and great conservation work going on and i know santa fe zoo is involved in luby's involved in and a lot of other zoological institutions are doing fantastic work but it all comes down to working with the local communities to get the job done yeah brian that story just gave me goosebumps and that's been one of the privileges of hosting this podcast is just knowing that there are so many conservation heroes out there and that one of our missions at the podcast is to create more of them and to help get it, people excited through ed- educating them and le- having them learn to love and conserve these animals. And so I want to talk about Luby here in a second. But before we get to Luby, for our listeners that live in different countries or not in the s- southeastern United States, what are some of the ways that people can get involved in their own local communities to help conserve bats? Oh, I think one of the things is to, to see what is being done. Um, in your country, in your community? Are there projects that are currently being uh, undertaken? Are there ways that you could get involved? Do they need help? Do they need uh, people to volunteer to do these projects? I, I can tell you right now, it's a, we love our volunteers and interns because they make our work possible. So education awareness is the first step. What projects are going on? What, what species do you even have in your area? You know, are any species endangered do is there a local uh, organization or a local university that's doing work on these animals so i think just doing a little bit of research about the species that are right in your backyard uh, issues they may be facing uh, projects that are ongoing projects maybe you have an idea for a project uh, to talk to to others um, again in the conservation and education community because this isn't just about the people out in the field this is about teachers. It's about community leaders. It's about, you know, wherever you live, uh, getting local involvement um, to find out about what's going on with bats in your area and and wildlife in general. Uh, Here in the States, um, or I guess, you know, worldwide, but but what we like to say here in the States is what can you do for bats in in your own backyard? Um, So one of the things you, you could do is just, can you leave some of your, your yard wild? Um, can you leave up, like we have palm trees here in Florida. So no I problem, no came, problem for that at my house. My, <laughs> I mean, yeah, my family does not have time for yard work. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I try to find a time, but damn, it's hard sometimes. But anyway, um, I remember whenever I came back I, to Luby, It's impossible. It, my goodness. It is. Everybody's got schedules. And then whenever you are home, it's like, eh, and I'd rather play with the kids or, you know, just relax and cook and have a beer, play my drums. I don't know. There's a lot of things to get involved in, but, but, um, but I remember whenever I came back as curator in 2007, we have palm trees and, you know, there was no, none of these fronds hanging down. They were trimmed like you'd see it, like these new developments. So I'm like, you know, so we left the palm fronds hanging. There's a species of bat here called a northern yellow bat. They love hanging in these things. So as long as it's not a safety hazard, you know, leave some of those palm fronds, leave some of those branches. The Spanish moss that we have here, bats, certain species love to roost in it. If you happen to have a dead tree in your yard, and again, it's not causing a safety hazard, leave it. Woodpeckers are going to love it. They're going to drill holes. And you know what? Bats will live in some of those holes. So if you can leave some of your yard wild, and it's not going to be any kind of a safety concern, leave it like that. Um, You could also put up a bat house. Five years ago, five, six years, sorry, four or five years ago, we started doing native bat work. Um, We started off by 
you know, funded a project. And they're like, no, 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 no. we're, we're going to do these projects, you know. So we've done a lot of acoustics and site surveys, and we've worked with cement plants. And and uh, one of the ultimate things we've done is we put up, we build and, inst- uh, build and install bad houses. We're actually putting one up tomorrow north of Tampa. So we encourage people that if you want to put up a bad house, put up a bad house. And if you go to our website, luby.org, there's information there about bad houses because it's going to be, you know, the color of the bad house and the placement's different whenever we were doing it in Penn State than, you know, we're doing it here in Florida. Uh, but put up a bad house. Um, you know, we've had uh, nearly 90% occupancy rate, success rate with our houses, which is which is really cool. Um, so there's a lot of things that people can do to help out bats and early education awareness. See what's going on in your local community, leaving some of your yard wild, putting up a bat house. And then if you go to our website, again, uh, luby, L-U-B-E-E dot org, we have a ton of educational resources and information um, for people to become aware of bats and, and learn about them. And, and people aren't going to protect something that they are unsure of. And I know there's a saying to go with it, but you're not going to protect anything you don't love. And, you know, if, if, if you, you're unsure of an animal or you want to learn more about it, there's a ton of resources out there and Luby's one of them. And now, Brian, this is the time of year. Normally, Luby opens its doors to the public and thousands of people can come see your flying foxes and big brown bats, your new addition, and get up close and personal, which, I mean, we just love and cherish my family and a lot of families here in our local community. And so with the pandemic this year, putting uh, kind of cramping all of our styles, if you will, um, what type of events is Luby hosting for BatFest? And how can people get involved with that? Yeah, so unfortunately, obviously following health and safety guidelines, I mean, <clears throat> we can have between 3,500 and 5,000 people here in a day of BatFest. So we obviously can't do that. But we were like, well, we, we want to do something, you know, so what can we do? Uh, so our wonderful programs and event coordinator, um, who I happen to be married to, and luckily so, um, you know, she came up with an idea that, that we're going to do a couple of things. So we are not, so BatFest uh, was going to take place on Saturday, October 24th. Uh, so that is not going to happen at Luby this year. But we have a couple of things we're offering folks. One, we have our virtual BatFest event, which we're calling Conservation from the Couch. So um, if people go to luby.org slash BatFest, um, there's a lot of information there. Again, luby.org slash BatFest. So uh, every Wednesday in October, we're hosting live chats, which we normally do this every other Wednesday. Um, but uh, every Wednesday in October, we're hosting live chats. People can watch. Uh, and those are going to be on our Facebook and Instagram pages. The week of BatFest, which is Saturday, October, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Sunday, October 18th to Saturday, October 24th. Um, every day we're going to be uh, hosting live chats. And then on Saturday, October 24th, we're going to be hosting uh, talks every time uh, from 11, 12, 1, and 2. Uh, and then we're going to have a lot of educational uh, resources, a lot of educational activities, um, new things for people to see, new, act, new uh, enrichment devices for the bats to play with. They're extremely playful, by the way. So, you know, new toys and uh, new things for the bats to do. So that's our virtual event. Um, we are partnering with our great friends uh, here in town in Gainesville, Black Adder Brewing Company, um, which the breweries in town have been absolutely fantastic supporters of Luby. Um, and, and Black Adder Brewery, we know the owners very well. Um, so the day of Black Adder Brewing Company, uh, we are hosting a 0.5 endurance level, you can do it marathon. <laughs> so it's essentially you. I can do yeah, it. <laughs> I can do that marathon. So um, we've been talking to the owners of Black Adder, Chris and Sissy, about this last year. But we thought it'd be something fun. And we're going to have prizes for like Silliest Walk Across the Finish Line, um, Best uh, Halloween Outfit, Bat Themed is obviously going to go well. But it's a 0.5K marathon, you know. So it's basically just walking around the block. Um, but it's, it is a way for, for Luby to raise money. 
money. I mean, we, we, this Batfest is our single largest fundraising event of the year. Uh, and that's not going to happen this year. So we're trying to find ways that we can, that we can kind of raise some money. And I thought that that would be really fun. So that's going to start and end at Black Adder on Saturday, October 24th. Um, and uh, what we're going to do to socially distance people is groups up to six folks uh, are going to leave every 10 minutes to do the quote race. <laughs> so we're going to distance people. Um, and uh, this is primarily an outdoor event and people are going to wear masks whenever they're not seated, that sort of thing. Um, I think I said that right. Yeah, if you're moving around wearing masks, you know, we're going to obviously follow all local health and safety guidelines. Um, but if people want to sign up for that, again, go to luby.org slash batfest. Now, if you go to the register and you check out the times that people can race, like 11, 10, 11, 20, you know, same thing every hour, every 10 minutes. We came up with these race names. Even if you don't register, just check out some of the race names we had because they're stupid and they're hilarious. But we incorporate an actual bat species into every one of those race time, you know, names. Um, but if people want to run the marathon, they can do that. They can also do that virtually um, by signing up. They don't have to be here in person. And then at Black Adder from 11 to 3, we're also going to have a very small outdoor bat appreciation day where, again, it's going to be distanced. We're going to follow all local health and safety guidelines. We're going to be just offering information about Luby and bats and ways that people get involved. I've mentioned it tomorrow. We're going to go uh, build. Uh, it's already built. We're going to install a bat house. The gentleman who builds those, it's myself and another guy, Tim Myrick. Uh, he's going to be doing bat house building demonstrations. So at 11, 12, and 1, 12, I believe, I'm sorry, 12, 1, and 2. He's going to show people how to build a bat house. He's going to have one made that he's going to take apart, show people what to do, and they can put it back together, and those will be available. We're also going to have merchandise for purchase, uh, raffle prizes, and people get to drink beer as well. So they can even, uh, I believe that now the open container laws have, I don't know, been repealed. You can even walk around the block with a beer if you'd want to. So um, if people want to go, again, luby.org slash batfest. Uh, we will be taking donations all month. So if people want to donate to Luby and support us, they can do so. Uh, they can get involved with our virtual event, Conservation from the Couch. They can sign up to run the marathon. Again, check out some of the names because they're ridiculous, but we had fun with it. Um, they can race virtually or they can join us again at Black Adder for the 0.5K marathon or Bat Appreciation Day. Uh, again, luby.org slash BatFest. Uh, and we're going to have a good time on Saturday, October 24th. Come out, uh, learn some things about bats, uh, enjoy the fantastic brews from Black Adder, and... Uh, and join us for a day of uh, celebrating bats. Oh yeah, Brian, we're definitely looking forward to it. And it's always fun to do new things as well too. And I know my almost seven year old is going to want to build a bat house. And so I'll put him and his father in, uh, on that mission and um, I'll be the one stro strolling around the block. So yeah, that is, that is so great. And just my last question is for you, since you're so passionate and you just have really built your career around working hard and fighting for what you believe in and learning along the way and growth. What is your advice for students or people in general that are interested in a career that could help save bat populations or even other species for that matter? You know, that that's one of the things that we talk about is <clears throat> we need to get to the younger generation involved. Because, you know, we're going to retire at some point. We're never going to stop doing what we do, by the way. I mean, you know that and I know that. We're always going to be involved until oh, the can. day it's we die. You know exactly. what I mean? It is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we need people to, to get interested. And that's one of the things that we talk about is how do people get interested? And so I, you know, before you know, age myself or before the Internet was really prevalent, you know, in like the mid 90s, I wouldn't have known about this stuff. I was working at the Pittsburgh Zoo. I didn't know that there was a place that you could find jobs. Henry Kisprizik will always be one of, my, one of my mentors. He was telling me about opportunities through this. I think it was called the Communique back in AZA in the day or, you know, Connect Magazine. But, but sure, it's, but, absolutely. But now that, 
you know, people can find out, honestly, if there's something that you're passionate about, please know that we need people to carry on what we're doing. We need people to care about wildlife. We need people to care about science. <laughs> and I guess I'll leave it at that. Science matters. Science is not biased. Science is data. So we need people to care it's going about to animals save us, and wildlife. <laughs> right? It is. Um, but please do your research. Look at what's out there. If, if there's even a topic that you might be interested in, look it up and know that there are places out there like Luby Bat Conservancy um, that take volunteers and interns. Come talk to us. Reach out to us. Reach out to the director of Santa Fe uh, Teaching Zoo, uh, John Mio. Talk to these people. We're always going to answer because we love these kind of interactions. Talk to us. Talk to you. You know, How do we get involved in these sort of things? If you're very passionate about something, don't hesitate. Don't have any regrets. Reach out. Find the information that's available. If you think you might want a career, contact the people that are readily involved in that and go volunteer at these organizations. Volunteer at your local animal rescue, wildlife rehabilitator, or zoo. Everybody's doing the same thing. We all care about animals. I'm in this because I love animals. I was raised that way. I've always been around animals. I married somebody who cares as deeply as I do about this. Know that there's individuals like us, like myself, you, my wife, your husband, who love what we do. And happy to talk to people. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Reach out to us and, and, and ask us how you can get involved, how you can get into this career. We'd be happy to do it, but take that first step. Do the research. Find out what's out there. Find out what's in your local community, what zoo, wildlife rescue rehabbers might be out there, and get involved. We need people out there to carry on this kind of work because it's going to be more important moving forward. We need people in the conservation and wildlife fields and education and research more than ever. Science matters. Oh, yes. <laughs> Very, very well said, Brian, and thank you so much for that because it is, I always, because as I always say is you never know who's going to be the next Jane Goodall or David Attenborough. I mean, you just, you don't know. And so as an educator, I love each child I talk to, each adult I talk to because one or two or 10 or 20 of them are going to help save species. And we need more and more and more of that if these really critical species like bats among others, are going to survive. So thank you for inspiring me and for everything you do at Luby. We just, we're such big fans of Luby's. And for our listeners out there that are not familiar, we'll put all the information that Brian has given us today on our show notes. But in the meantime, go to luby.org. That's L-U-B-E-E.org. Um, they also have a wonderful interactive Facebook page, which there's just tons of cute pictures. So if you don't know what a flying fox looks like, playing with a pumpkin or eating a pumpkin even, right? You need more of that in your life right now. Trust me, turn off the news and follow Luby on Facebook and Instagram and other social media sites. And Brian, you also mentioned the the cameras. That was, was that explore.org? Yeah, explore.org. Um, they have cameras all over the world looking at different animals, but we have two of them. Um, one that's in a mixed species flying fox exhibit and another one that's in our they have giant, you know, our big Malayan flying foxes. And so, again, explore.org, uh, just look up bats. And I just got the genetic data back. <clears throat> We're going to be putting together a breeding group in that pen probably within the next couple weeks. So you'll. this is breeding season, by the way, with, with our bats here. In the wild, it would be the opposite. You know, we're in northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere. But things are getting a little rowdy here. We keep the sexes separated. They don't breed. But we are going to put together a breeding group based on genetics so people will be able to watch these bats breed. But, you know gestation their gestation is long five six months five six months hopefully you'll be able to see our bats giving birth and, and raising their pups it went very well the last time uh, we had babies born last year and hopefully we're going to have some more again next year and that's at explore.org just look for the bat cameras 
Awesome. We will definitely keep that in mind and share some of that on our social media sites as well. Because like I said, how much more, that's like real, better than reality TV, if you ask me. So, well, Brian, thank you so much for talking to me today. It was such a pleasure. I really enjoyed your stories and learning a lot more about bats myself. And so hopefully you and I can keep this conversation going over a beer um, at the event on October 24th. And everyone else, if you're not in our local Gainesville, Florida community, please go online, luby.org, and check out some of the virtual events you can get involved with and or just donate money because every little bit helps. So... Thank you so much, Brian, and I hope to have you back again on the podcast sometime soon. Well, thank you very much. It was very nice speaking with you and appreciate this opportunity.